Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 81 of Fan of History, 5500 to 5100 BC. Previously on the Fan of History, we talked about the Star Chivo culture that occupied a sizable area of the Balkans bringing with them the farming societies of the first temperate Neolithic. Things never remained the same, and in the region of the former Yugoslavia, a successor culture would emerge that would be distinguished for the earliest proto-writing found in Europe. Let us say hello to the Vinca culture. The Vinca culture lasts from 5500 to 4200 BC. The Vinca occupied a region of southeast Europe, corresponding to modern-day Serbia, as well as parts of Romania, Bulgaria, Bosnia, Montenegro, Macedonia and Greece. During this period, they started to occupy new areas that were bypassed by earlier settlers, which led to an unprecedented level of settlement size and density. These settlements were larger than any other contemporary European culture. In fact, they were even larger than the later Aegean and early Near Eastern Bronze Age cities, a thousand years later. The type site of Vinca, Belobrdu, discovered by Serbian archaeologist Miloše Vasic in 1908, had a population of 2,500 people and covered an area of 29 hectares. Settlement density was usually 50 to 200 people per hectare, which increased later to an average of 50 to 100 people per hectare. The previous Starchevo settlement of Divostin in Serbia 
had a maximum population of 8,200 that contained 1,028 houses between 4,900 and 4,650 BC. Other settlements included Stubline and Parta. But where did the Vinca originate from? Before radiocarbon dating, it was thought that the Vinca and other Neolithic cultures belonged to the dark burnished ware complex that had migrated from Anatolia to the Balkans. Following a reassessment after radiocarbon dating, it is shown that it is complex. This complex arrived much later, about 1000 years before the first settlement of Troy in the 3rd millennium BC. Colin Renfrew proposed in 1969 that the Vinca developed locally from the Starchevo, and this is now accepted by many scholars. Inside the Vinca settlements, most people practiced a mixed economy of agriculture and animal husbandry. Common wheat, oat and flax were introduced to temperate Europe, which increased crop yields and allowed the manufacture of clothing from plant textiles, leather and wool. To get an idea as to what they wore, figurines depicted open-necked tunics and decorated shirt skirts woven from flax and wool. Buttons were made from shell or stone. With the introduction of the cattle-driven plow, this opened new areas of land for farming. No more back-breaking work required. Where land had less potential, villagers would move their livestock to upland areas on a seasonal basis. In comparison to previous cultures, cattle became more important than sheep and goats, being increasingly used for milk, leather and as draft animals, rather than just for meat. Movement to upland areas enabled people to exploit the natural resources of stones and minerals. One of these minerals was copper ore that was mined on a large scale at Rudnaglava in eastern Serbia. It, it was more likely that these were ground into powder for production of pottery or as body decoration. That is the first use of copper ore, but it's not copper and we have not reached the copper age yet. A minority of Vinca people still hunted for deer, boar and aurochs. They fished for carp and catfish, they collected shells and they foraged for wild cereals, forest fruits and nuts. The majority were in settlements that were based on the agricultural economy rather than hunting and gathering that had been prevalent for thousands of years. It was only if the area was low in arable productivity that wild resources were exploited. We stated that the settlers used powered, powdered copper ore to produce pottery. This was done at the household level where a two-stage method was used to produce a polished, multicolored finish known as blacktopped and rainbow ware. Cinnabar and limonite was applied as decoration after firing. Tools continued to be made from chipped stone, bone and antler. There is little evidence that craft production was made for economic purposes to trade with other settlements. The Vinca culture was synonymous with one aspect that was unique to the cultures of Southeast Europe and the world at large. Archaeological excavations 
led by the Hungarian archaeologist Sofia Tormat, toured those Romania in 1875, unearthed a cache of objects inscribed with unknown symbols. Miloje Vasik found a similar cache at Vinca Belobrudo in 1908. What was going on? A discovery of tablets at Tartaria, Romania by Nicolae Vlasa in 1961 added fuel to this debate after 53 years. Nicolae Vlasa believed that these inscriptions were pictograms. Radiocarbon dating found these tablets to be dated to before 4000 BC, 1300 years earlier than expected. This was much earlier than the proto-writing system of Uruk, southern Mesopotamia, and more than 1,000 fragments with similar inscriptions have been found in Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, eastern Hungary, Moldova, and in the south of Ukraine. Most of these inscriptions were found on pottery. 85% of them consisted of a single symbol. At first... It was thought that a single symbol was a property mark. For example, this pottery belonged to X. As these same symbols have been found throughout the Winka area, with hundreds of kilometers between them, it is likely that these were used for religious purposes. With little change in these symbols, the ritual meaning and culture would not have changed for a long time until they were abandoned at the start of the Bronze Age. Some comb or brush symbols could have represented numbers. Scholars have pointed out that 25% of these inscriptions are located on the bottom of a pot. A bit strange to have it there if you were going to use it for religious purposes unless you intended to have it upside down. It is possible that these numerical symbols were used to ascertain the value or contents inside these pots. The later Sumerians and Minoans used their script for accounting purposes. Could the Vinca have done the same but much earlier? One advocate of the writing scenario was Maria Gimbutas, who hypothesized that the Kurgan culture of the Pontic steppe was the forerunner of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Gimbutas observed that Neolithic iconography was female in nature and concluded that a matriarchic culture existed that worshipped the range of gods and goddesses. She suggested that the writing system as part of the old European script was the writing system for an old European language that has died out or was a kind of proto writing symbolic system. This theory is highly controversial and has found critics who state this writing system cannot be found in an area wider than southeast Hungary, western Romania and western Bulgaria. The jury is still out as to whether this is a candidate for the world's earliest writing system like those shiny scripts mentioned in previous episodes. In 4800 BC, the center of the network shifted to Rasak, northeast Serbia. Long distance exchange of obsidian from Hungary and seashells from the Aegean became more important 
down production of figurines. After 2,000 years of intensive farming, decreased soil fertility caused the Vinca culture to decline until the Vinca culture ended completely in 4200 BC. There is one culture that was influenced by the Starchevo. In 5500 BC, another group of intrepid farmers that made their way up the Tishka River to reach southern Hungary. They encountered the existing Mesolithic people that would lead them to abandon their hunter-gatherer lifestyle. This culture spread further up the Danube River, bringing with them a new style of pottery, which their culture was named after. Their story begins at the same time as when the Winka emerged in Serbia. And this is the linear pottery culture, 5500 to 4500 BC. Early investigators looked for clues from earlier Starchevo pottery that contained spirals, converging bands and vertical bands. What they noticed was that the later linear bandware pottery that was produced by the linear pottery culture seemed to imitate and improve on the Starchevo pottery by introducing painted incised lines. There seemed to be a link between both cultures. The linear pottery culture emerged in the middle Danube area of Western Hungary, Southern Germany, Austria and the Czech Republic in 5500 BC. Initially known as the early or western linear pottery culture to distinguish it from the eastern linear pottery culture. It spread along the rivers Danube, Rhine and the Elbe over a period of 360 years, reaching the Netherlands by approximately 5200 BC. By then, the linear pottery had reached its middle phase in Austria, which was known as the music note pottery phase that moved eastwards into Romania and Ukraine. The late phase in 5000 BC, known as stroked pottery culture, evolved in Central Europe and spread eastwards. The Eastern Linear Pottery Culture developed in Eastern Hungary and Transylvania. This area had been occupied by the Starchevo as early as 6100 BC. In 5300 BC, the classical Alföld culture appeared north of the Körös culture on the upper Tiska river that flourished until 4900 BC. And one view is that the Alföld came directly from the Körös with the short-range Shatmar on the northern edge of the Körös being a transitional group. Pottery of the Alföld was decorated with painted white bands of incised edges. The economy relied on cattle and pigs, wild varieties of both animals occurring in the region. Barley, millet and lentils were brought into the region from elsewhere. Towards the end of the Middle Neolithic, the Alföld separated into five local groups that were characterized by finely crafted and decorated wares. The end of the Eastern Linear Pottery Culture remains uncertain. There are arguments to suggest that the Linear Pottery did not derive from the Tarchevo. Although the Starchevo entered Hungary in 6100 BC, their 
appears to be a gap of 500 to 600 years. That's a pretty long time period until the linear pottery arrived. Cultivated species of Near Eastern crops did not grow well in soil conditions of Central Europe. Mesolithic people tended to use domestic species that developed their own food production from native plants and animals. There is a possibility that Mesolithic people were influenced by the steppe people of the Eastern European plain. Pottery was used to gather wild food resources, so it is assumed that the Central European Mesolithic people were stimulated to produce their own pottery for local food production that spread rapidly throughout the area. One thing for certain is that the area would have been heavily forested. Farmers would have had to use slash and burn techniques to clear areas for cultivation. Once trees were cleared, farmers cultivated a variety of crops that included emery wheat, einkorn wheat, peas, lentils, barley, broom corn millet, rye, bitter wedge and broad or field beans. Soils in terraced areas or next to rivers were much more conductive to these types of crops. With farming being introduced into the area, it was time to settle down and build your settlement. Unlike previous places we have visited, these people decided to build something different and unique. In fact, they built something you would normally find among the Vikings thousands of years later, and that was the longhouse. The typical size of a rectangular longhouse was between five and a half and seven meters wide. Extra posts at the end of the building was evidence that some longhouses had a second floor. Clay was dug from pits for wattle and daub, with these pits being used afterwards for storage. Inside, the longhouse had no windows and only one door. It was divided into three areas. Working activities were carried out in the brightly lit area next to the doorway. The middle area was used for eating and sleeping, and the farthest end would have been either kept for grain storage or for keeping animals. With all these people and animals inside the house, it was likely to be smelly. And what to do with all the waste? Along the outer walls at the enclosed end, ditches have been found that were used as a drainage system to collect waste and rainwater. It was unlikely that they were used for defensive purposes. One settlement at Oslonski in southern Poland revealed a large fortified settlement dating to 4300 BC that covered an area of 4000 square meters. This was the exception rather than the rule. Villages contained between five and eight longhouses that were spaced Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 20 meter apart 
over an area of between 300 and 1250 acres. One longhouse may have supported one extended family, although the short lifespan would have precluded more than two generations. People didn't live very long. Houses required too much labors, uh, too much labor to be residences of single families. It seems that the villages would band together in some form of settlement cell, but the social structure between them remains obscure. The population was sedentary until the land was put beyond use. A study in the region of Wetterau in Hesse, Germany, revealed that 82% of the land was suitable for agriculture, 11% of the land was suitable for grazing, and 7% were suitable for upland activities. The land was occupied for approximately 400 years, with 14 settlements, 53 houses and 318 people. It spread over the region, reaching a maximum of 47 settlements, 122 houses and 732 people in the later period. At the end of the period, populations reduced even though much of the arable land was still available. Cattle was the main economic purpose, so available grazing land was limited. Once grazing land was used up, people moved to other areas in search of them. To get their fresh water, people constructed wells with a log cabin lining, one layer at a time, so the previous layers would sink into the well. You could obtain fresh water from the nearby river. Flints from southern Poland and obsidian from Byk and Tatra mountains were used to manufacture tools. It would still be a matter of time before metal would come into use. And we will touch up on that when our story progresses. How did farmers harvest their crops? Well, with stone sickles. Though these sickles were made of flint before being inserted into a curved piece of wood. Another tool, known as a kelt, was manufactured from a ground stone chisel blade that was pulled over a piece of wood tied to a handle. Flint was already well known to Mesolithic people. So what did these people believe in? It is likely that the linear pottery worshipped the mother goddess figure that was so prevalent in Neolithic cultures of the Near East, Aegean Sea and Southeast Europe. As we know from our story, female figurines have been produced since the Paleolithic times, that is 30-40,000 years before this episode. By the Neolithic, the female figure continued to dominate cultures that had grown around the mystery of birth, life and death. Nothing new was brought to the linear pottery. In the northern regions, a goddess was worshipped over a variety of things from animals and grain to more mundane things like life and death. As for burials, the early Neolithic in Europe contained burials of women and children underneath floors or longhouses. This changed in 5000 BC. Separate cemeteries, close to but distinct from the residential area, started to be used that contained between 20 and 200 graves in groups based on kinship. This time, males were included, along with the introduction of cremation. 
Those that were still buried were placed in a flexed position, in pits lined with stones, plaster or clay. Male graves contained stone celts, flint implements and those seashells. Female graves contained similar artifacts but also included pottery and containers of ochre. Analysis of pottery suggested that each household developed their own tradition, made by female members of the household. Grave goods have been interpreted as either personal possessions of the deceased or gifts made by other members of the village. Only 30% of graves have goods, which reflected that these people were important to the community, as if they were special or maybe wealthier than others. Was this a proto-noble class? Perhaps. In 4500 BC, several cultures replaced the linear pottery across the whole area. Notable ones include the Lengiel, the Boian, and the Cucutiani Tripilian. We'll talk about all of them in future episodes. But now we're going to go to China and we're going to talk about the Hemudu culture. It existed between 5500 and 3300 BC. In eastern China, people started to take advantage of the improved climate conditions to settle just south of Hangzhou Bay in Zhejiang province between 5500 and 3300 BC. Named after the type site of Hemudu that was discovered 22 kilometers northwest of Ningbu in 1973, these people are believed to be the earliest to cultivate rice and produce lacquer wood. They shared characteristics with the Majiabang culture that emerged at the mouth of the Jiangxi River in 5000 BC, either as two separate and distinct entities or by sharing cultural traditions with them. More on the Majiabang in a later episode. Despite being the earliest culture in eastern China to domesticate rice, the Hamudu tended to practice a hunting-gathering lifestyle, hunting deer and wild-water buffalo, fishing for carp, and collecting a variety of plants, including caltrop, acorns, melon, wild kiwi fruit, blackberries, peaches, foxnuts, and bottle gourds. The culture is known for the earliest production of lacquer work in China. An example of this can be found at Shejiang Museum, where a red lacquer wood bowl is displayed. And that bowl is dated to between 4000 and 5000 BC. Other items found included a thick, porous black pottery painted with plant and geometric designs, jade ornaments, carved ivory artifacts, small clay figurines and bone whistles and wooden drums like those found in Southeast Asia. The links with Southeast Asia and Indonesia is intriguing as some scholars suggest that the Hamudu were the progenitors of the Proto-Austronesian culture. People worshipped the sun and fertility spirit. They enacted shamanistic rituals to the sun they erected bird totems and they had a belief in both the afterlife and in ghosts. People were buried with their heads facing east or northeast, with most of them having no burial objects. 
infants were buried in urn casket style burials, while children and adults received earth level burials. A clown communal burial ground was found dated to the later period where two groups buried in separate parts of the burial ground were thought to denote two intermarrying clans. And, strangely enough, more burial goods were found in this communal burial ground than anywhere else in any other Hemudu site. We will return to China in the next episode, and then we will look at the Beixin culture. But now, we are going to look at the Iba Ubaid period, 5400 to 4800 BC. Agriculture had already been well and truly established in the Near East for thousands of years at this point. In the last episode we looked at the Hasuna culture that emerged in the dry farming region of northern Iraq, known as Mesopotamia in ancient times. We mentioned that they were to become influenced by events further south, but how did this come about? Why did these people settle in the marches of southern Iraq? It all starts in 6500 BC with an influence of people from central Mesopotamia known as the Samara culture. They used to be known as the pre-Euphratians but are now known as the Ubaid people. Why would anyone want to settle in southern Mesopotamia? The extreme flatness of the surrounding plain made it prone to flooding from both the Tigris and the Euphrates. Temperatures could reach as high as 50 degrees centigrade. And it had less than 250 millimeters of rainfall per year. The ground was simply too dry to drain adequately. Any water that remained in the fields would evaporate quickly, with high levels of salt remaining in the fields. And this was clearly unsuitable for producing wheat. Although a small settlement did appear at Tel El Weli in Dikar Governorate in approximately 6500 BC, not much is known about it, as the site was looted at the end of the Second Gulf War in 2003. It wasn't long before people became more established in the area, and these were people displaced from further upstream. Thanks to the high water tables of southern Mesopotamia, it wasn't long before these people developed a farming system that relied on oxen for the cultivation of irrigated salt-tolerant crops, such as barley. Improvements in irrigation technology allowed farming to develop in larger areas. Another advantage was that the area contained an abundance of marsh reeds that could be used for housing, animal fodder and to build boats. The marsh Arabs who lived there today despite being persecuted under Saddam Hussein's regime still used this technology. People began to use plentiful supplies of mud to construct their houses. Every time it rained, the settlement washed away. As it doesn't rain that often, it wasn't long before they realized they could leave the mud to dry and produce a much sturdier mud-brick construction. Between 6000-5500 BC, permanent settlements became more noticeable in southern Mesopotamia 
and this culminated in the first city to appear in the region and this was Eridu. Eridu was founded in 5400 BC on the shoreline of the Persian Gulf. It seemed to have been based upon intensive subsistence irrigation agriculture derived from the Samara culture to the north. It was characterized by the building of canals and mud brick buildings. If you look at the map of southern Iraq today, you will notice that the remains of the Eridu city are located well inland. But Eridu hasn't moved. Over thousands of years, silt washed down from Tigris and the Euphrates, and it has shifted the shoreline further away to the southeast. People started to arrive from the Arabian littoral, bringing their fisher-hunter cultural lifestyle with them. Extensive evidence of middens have been found along the Arabian shoreline. As opposed to the original Ubaid people, scholars suggested that Arabian people would be the later Sumerians. After this, a group of Semitic-speaking nomadic herders arrived in the marginal desert areas, bringing their sheep and goats with them. Nobody seemed to mind. Eridu increased to a size of 20 to 25 acres, with a population not exceeding 4,000 people. According to Sumerian mythology, Eridu was the dwelling place of Enki, or Ea in Akkadian, the god of the deep waters, the god of wisdom and magic. Starting as a local god, Enki soon came to prominence, joining Anu and Enlil in the hierarchy of the Sumerian pantheon of gods. Enki needed a home. Let us construct a nice dwelling place for the god, an impressive mud-brick temple complex known as either the Absu Temple or the House of the Aquifer was constructed and served as both a communal place of worship and as a center for collection and distribution of agricultural goods. This could only happen due to social developments that allowed some members of the community to gain distinct status. Power of these newly developed elites derived from control of agricultural resources and construction of further irrigation canals that led to one family merging to administer harvests in a central location. Away from the temple, archaeological levels contain masses of fish bones that were used as offerings to Enki. Social organizations beyond the household developed within communities with all families contributing to the temple cult. A priest class would develop inside the temple to rule the city. Outside the city, a hierarchy of settlements developed with measured 10 to 15 hectares, surrounded by smaller ones of between half and two hectares in size. Individual communities became integrated into wider cooperative territorial organization. Egyptologist David Rule believed that Eridu was the original location of the Tower of Babel. According to Sumerian myth known as Enmerkar and the Lord of Aratta, Enmerkar of Uruk, 
built a massive ziggurat in Eridu, demanding tribute of precious materials from Arata for, for its construction. At one point, Enmerkar recited an incantation imploring the god Enki to restore the linguistic unity of the inhabited region so they may all address Enlil together in a single language. Could this be a metaphor for all the different groups of people that arrived in Eridu? There was certainly no tower or cigarette that was cast down as per the Old Testament. Most scholars dismiss David, dismiss David Rowell's claims. We will return to the Ubaid culture in a later episode when it begins to have an influence on northern Mesopotamia. We will also look at the development of sailing in the Persian Gulf. But that's it for this episode. Uh, you will learn more about the rest of the later 6th millennium BC, like the Samara culture of Russia and the Kongemos in Denmark. But we are now going to split this. So we'll talk in the next episode. We'll finish off the period between 5500 and 5100 BC. And this episode has been written by Shane Sowersby. Thank you to Shane. And I am Dan Horning. And thank you very much for listening to Fan of History. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.